Welcome to today's Active Intensive Care podcast. Today we're going to be talking to Hannah Conway about Point Care Ultrasound. Yeah, hi Ricky. Um, so I'm Hannah and I'm a dual clinical academic uh, advanced critical care practitioner from Leicestershire UK. Um, and I suppose what's more relevant to this sort of talk today is that I'm an ICS Fusic committee member um, with a lead role in Fusic Heart. Okay, Hannah, just to start really, for those that might not know, can you tell us a bit more about what Fusic Heart is? Yeah, so Fusic Heart is a focused echocardiography ultrasound uh, assessment. And the data set is really simple. So essentially, we're going to be looking at uh, left ventricular and right ventricular cardiac function. And we're going to be looking at um, signs of any low preload, whether that be hypovolemia or vasoplegia. We're also looking at whether or not there's any dilated chambers of the heart and also looking for any signs of pericardial or pleural collection. So it's quite simple, really, but I think it answers most questions that people need to know when they're faced with a hemodynamically unstable patient. So outside of a cardiac centre, do you think this is a useful skill for ICM doctors to, to have? Yeah, I mean, simple answer is is yes. I think it's really important to use all the tools that you have available to you. And POCUS definitely is is one of those key tools for anyone that works in an acute specialty. Um, if you work in a cardiac centre, these types of tools are always available. They're usually more than one person on the unit at the time that can use them. So I think it's actually more important for the small district general hospitals where that sort of skill isn't readily available to have to have someone that can use focused echo to answer those really uh, important questions, maybe at 2 a.m. in the morning. I mean, one thing that I think underpins all of this is that in 2017, the Department of Health essentially mandated that there should be 24-7 access to imaging, one of which is emergency echo. And really what that did is it highlighted that we haven't really got anything out of hours in the in the ways of an echo that can meet that demand. So focused echo really came to the forefront at that point. BSE Level 1 developed the accreditation for emergency um, level echo. And obviously FUSIC at that point was called FICE. That had been around for a while. So we saw a huge uptake of individuals wanting to to undertake this level of training, which was great. In terms of training, is Fusic Heart an essential part of ICM training now? And or if not, do you see it being that way in the future? Yeah, so it's not. Um, and I think it's always been on the cards. Uh, I don't know how close we are to that, if I'm honest with you. I think year on year, Echo has become more popular. Um, I certainly, as an Echo trainer, I'm seeing a huge uptake now across the more junior doctors so sort of foundation year core trainee level starting to use it so I think it's only a matter of time before it does get integrated into the curriculum and one thing that may or may not influence that is that the curriculum for acute internal medicine that now includes point of care ultrasound as a mandated skill and I think from my memory around about ST4 level you're expected to attend a course and then by the time that you're ST5, you'd be expected to be proficient in focus, chest, abdomen and lower leg ultrasound. You know, it's a shame that we haven't been able to get there first from an intensive care setting because I think it's such an accepted skill. And, you know, FUSIC is is a sort of house, household name, really, isn't it? But the next step really is to get it 
mandated in the curriculum. It sounds like we're sort of lagging a little bit behind then with a few other specialties. I know A and E, emergency medicine in particular, seems to be sort of raring ahead with their yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, again, that's been around for a long time, and you know, if you look at their their equivalent, I guess, to Physic Heart, which is Feel, you know, that that sort of took off initially, and there was lots of buzz around that, and then it sort of fell out of favour a little bit in terms of the that being the one accreditation that people looked to, and I think Feist sort of like exploded. I think that was about 2012 when Feist came came on the shelves, and it has sustained its level of popularity, not only within intensive care, but in in the other acute specialties. We've got lots of uh, emergency physicians, acute medics who come onto the course, um, and even primary care, who we see on our courses sort of monthly, really. But yeah, you're right. Um, emergency medicine has definitely uh, has definitely streets ahead, really, when it comes to mandating it within a curriculum. So there's some catching up to do. One of the arguments I've heard against point of care ultrasound is that people talk about you're just going to get a formal echo anyway, so it's just delaying that. What's what's your thoughts on that? Well, I suppose the first question, and I get asked this all the time, you know, there are some naysayers out there, and and I suppose I have to come equipped with an answer for them. And I guess what I do ask them is, well, what is it that a formal echo is going to tell you that a focused echo can't? And that's usually the point where they become unstuck because they can't really detail what it is except for just having that reassurance that it's being done by someone who is advanced level trained if we look at sort of the british society of echocardiography level two echo which is what we would look at as a formal echo versus fusic heart which is our focus data set they're completely two different sort of utilities of ultrasound it's not that it's BSC Level 2 has got Fusic Heart and more. It's just they're used for completely different purposes. So I can't really see that you can compare the two. You know, Level 2 ultrasound echo, sorry, is used purely for diagnostic purposes. And Fusic is used for diagnostic purposes, but it's also used for hemodynamic assessment. So in a setting like intensive care, I think it's just only sensible to want to choose something that's going to give you the diagnostics you need to make rapid decisions to then use the tool to be able to assess whether that decision was the right one and then decide upon another decision and another, another sort of path and then to use it for ongoing hemodynamic assessment because that's what we do you know do we need to ease back off the inotropes do we need to put some more on do we need to stop giving the fluid that we're giving is that making the situation worse or do we actually we need to give some more and i think to have that tool at the bedside so that it's a dynamic process is invaluable and I can't see how personally having an individual come into an intensive care environment take a relatively sort of formal static parameters and then put all that into a report and all of that will take more than an hour to do only then to potentially not be able to answer the question that we wanted to answer in the first place. You know, in answer to your question, I think formal echo really doesn't really have a place in intensive care. And I think the only way that it will become helpful is if there is a decision that needs to be made that's going to have an impact on someone's surgery, for example. You know, if there's a valve dysfunction, um, which is outside of the data set of Fusic Heart, and we need to make some decisions about whether or not this patient needs to have um, surgery. That's where formal echo, I think, plays a role. 
I'll give you a scenario and tell me how point of care ultrasound would play a part in this. So let's say it's it's out of hours, it's 7 p.m. Um, you're the intensive care reg and you're called to a two-day post-laparotomy patient who's dropped their blood pressure, they're tachycardic, their lactate's gone up to, say, five. How does point of care ultrasound have a role to play in, in that sort of patient? Well, one of the key um, roles of ultrasound in this particular situation is it's able to differentiate shock. So, you know, if we're looking at this scenario, in my pretest probability would be that the patient has either developed sepsis, um, maybe they've got some um, ischemia of the bowel, and it could be something, you know, other than that, i.e. PE. But at this moment in time, without sending off various tests that might not necessarily come back with immediate effects, I don't know which path to take. So ultrasound really does play a role here because I know in a very short time frame, I can get a rapid assessment of quite a few things that would help me determine which shock pathway to go down. So let's take sort of the first thing that we use echo for cardiac function. If I was concerned that this patient has developed sepsis and, you know, their heart function is now impaired, secondary to that, I'd be looking to see whether or not there's any signs of um, left ventricular dysfunction or indeed uh, right ventricular dysfunction. I'd then be looking for uh, an assessment of preload to see whether or not there's a sort of hypervolemic cause, whether or not the patient has got any signs of vasoplegia. So I'm looking to see how well the ventricle appears in terms of its size. Does it collapse during systole? Is it hyperdynamic? And you can always use other tools that are available, maybe so more so in the HD package that has just been developed to look for hemodynamic markers. So we can use LVOT-VTIs to give us a general estimate of cardiac output. So we said that PE could be a potential issue at play here. So in order to assess for that, primarily start by looking at the right ventricle, see whether or not that there's any signs of dilatation. I'd also be looking at the function. Now, there's key signs that we look for on echo when it comes to PE. One of them is called the McConnell sign. Um, some of you may have heard of that, where there's a specific regional wall motion abnormality. The RV free wall is akinetic with what we call apical sparing. So the apex looks contractile. Now, actually, this is thought to be because the alvi, which is normally hyperdynamic, is actually tethered to the apex and pulling it over. So what it appears to, to the eye is that the actual apex is spared in its actual function. But in reality, the RV is uh, is poorly contractile. And I'd also be looking for signs of RV pressure overload um, or, or volume overload, which would be evidenced by flattening of the septum, resulting in a small left ventricular diastolic and systolic area. And again, with the Fusic HD package, if we want to be a bit more sophisticated, we can use we can use Doppler to assess for right-sided pressure increase. So using the tricuspid regurgitant jet, we can estimate pulmonary artery systolic pressures. You know, and then finally, I'm going to be looking for any effusions and collections that could be contributing to the deterioration in this patient. And then all of that really allows me to differentiate shock and allows me to institute management at the bedside and see whether or not I can actually turn those numbers around, improve those hemodynamics, and also be able to kind of give me an indication of whether or not we need any additional imaging to, to help um, reach diagnosis. And again, it's a rapid assessment. It can be done at the bedside. I've not been able to, I've not had to stop, you know, go away, have a conversation with somebody, bring in somebody from outside of ITU to, to help with this. You know, that is the key 
attraction of focused cardiac ultrasound. It doesn't take you away from the patient that you're worried about. So I, I suppose, as you say, you know, the, the typical hypotensive post-laparotomy patient, you think sepsis, but there's the other, all the other causes of shock that you can't easily differentiate. And, and that sounds like that's where cardiac, cardiac yeah. ultrasound comes into play, really. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a very methodical tool to use to help put you on the right path very easily, very quickly without having to delay decision making. And and therefore, it is, in my eyes, an, a sort of fundamental tool for anyone that works in intensive care. I suppose sometimes you can find unexpected things. So you, you might think, oh, this is just sepsis and then put the probe on and then find something unexpected. Has that happened in, to you in the past? Yeah, I mean, sort of moving away from this scenario, yes, it has. I mean, we've one one particular um, scenario that I'm thinking about because it really did probably highlight for me how important whole body ultrasound is. Having been a sort of avid cardiac focus fan for years was, you know, you're working in the cardiac intensive care unit. Somebody's gone and had some form of cardiac surgery and you always think it's because of something related to that you know for the reason they deteriorate is something that's related to that and you don't necessarily you get focused in and you you don't look at other things and we had a patient that had been deteriorating all night you know we were happy with the heart there was nothing concerning there we were happy with the filling status there was no collection but this patient continued to deteriorate and uh, hemoglobin was starting to to drop and we were thinking what's wrong and it was only then when we started to do a little bit more of a sort of broader assessment that we found this individual had a belly full of blood and this unfortunately had occurred secondary to a, a sort of femoral cannulation during the process of cardiopulmonary bypass. And yes, people would say, well, hang on a minute, didn't you assess the patient sort of, you know, clinically? We had, and the unfortunate thing was this patient had um, had quite significant fibroids. So we knew this individual to have quite a, a, a tense abdomen. So it didn't um sort of jump out at us as an issue and it only was because of looking uh, a little bit more broadly with the ultrasound probe that we found that the uh, the fluid was uh, tucked underneath the diaphragm so that was a kind of quick a quick win then in terms of what we did next and uh, it does really highlight that ultrasound outside of the thoracic cavities is, a, is an important thing to add to your repertoire let's carry on a little bit with this post-laparoscopy patients. So let, let's say they are septic and hypotensive okay. from sepsis. How, how does body care ultrasound guide you in, in the ongoing management of that? So obviously there is a, a, a chance that we could be exacerbating the situation. Um, for example, the, at the old adage of giving too much fluid, you know, these patients will always appear fluid responsive by the virtue that they are vasoplegic and could have been that we have already exacerbated that situation by trying to improve blood pressure with giving, you know, multiple boluses of fluid. So it's just about careful monitoring of that situation. You know, at one point that physiological state will, you know, repair and the patient will become less and less vasoplegic. And we need to kind of track that process. So I would use ECHO to just assess whether or not actually the cardiac function is is adequate. Um, we, we know that these patients can develop septic cardiomyopathy. You know, whilst we're giving lots of vasopressors, are we actually doing harm to the ventricle by impairing function? So just trying to titrate the drugs that we're using, you know, so do we need a little bit of push? 
Um, do we need to ease back off the squeeze? Do we need to kind of try and offload this patient at one point when they start to sort of resolve from vasoplegia? So that's kind of what I would be primarily using ECHO for. And I think it's it's really important at that point to to keep a close eye. And I've always said to people that ECHO is not a single data point. It'd just be as bad as using the CVP to guide fluid management in that respect. So it has to be a serial assessment. And every time you want to change something, it doesn't take too much to to pop a probe on and just see how that's how that's affected the the heart. And, you know, also looking for signs of, you know, third spacing and, you know, that might be something you need to do something about later on down the line comes to uh, fluid de-resuscitation. You mentioned a little bit there about septic cardiomyopathy. So being able to look at what the heart's doing, will that alter which sort of vasoactive you use, whether you decide to start adrenaline or, or something like that? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I mean, if we if we look at someone who's truly septic on ITU without question we would want to get the NORAD on and possibly add a bit of vasopressin which you know will be the right thing to do but has that now impaired the ventricular function um, such that we are just not getting any forward push so at that point I'd be looking carefully to see whether or not there'd be a requirement for for adrenaline or, or something other than that so that we can help you know, move things in the forward direction. That's a common thing that happens, you know, patients that are on two vasopressors and actually initially they were getting better, but now they seem to be getting a little bit worse. And nine times out of 10, it's because the vasoplegia is actually resolving and we're still on quite a lot of vasopressors and the heart's like, oh. So, you know, it may be something because just dialing back the vasopressors. Is it a point now that we need to take the vasopressin off? Do we use the vasopressin to get the NORAD down to a sensible level? Or actually, is the heart struggling such now that we need to sort of add a add a ninotrope in there? So I think it's a, it's a really important tool in sepsis and totally underutilised. But in my experience, has always been it's always been the, the, the state in which I've kind of wanted to spend a little bit more time at the bedside as opposed to kind of make a decision, move away for a few hours and come back. So I suppose in the past with severe sepsis, like you're describing, my, my practice had been just to sort of crank up the noradrenaline when that sort of seemingly gets to arbitrary fairly high numbers, you add in the, yeah. the vaso and then when, when that's going up, you arbitrarily add in the adrenaline, whereas it sounds like one care echo makes you a bit more discriminatory about when you might want to add in an inotrope rather than just pure vasopressin. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's important to, you know, to also know a little bit more data at this stage, which I think is really important to consider, you know, that the future of ECHO is moving toward adding a more advanced data set on top of what we already use, which is Fusic Heart. Fusic HD now has a really key role because, you know, we're looking at the heart and, uh, you know, size, we're looking at the the filling status and we're looking at contractility. But what what's the hemodynamics that are associated with that? You know, we've got lots of stuff monitored in front of us but often centers don't have cardiac output monitoring and i think a really important tool is using albio tvti as a surrogate marker of cardiac index you know those are such easy things to add to our existing data set but it gives us such a such an amount of reassurance when we know that the drugs that we're on are associated with a reasonable cardiac output 
And it just gives you another data point. And I think that's all we need, you know, to add to your clinical examination, you know, the focused echo that you've just done. I think I'd feel re- reassured when I had something additional to kind of know that what we're doing is the right thing. And again, it's it's a trend as opposed to single data points. So looking at how that changes over time. In terms of going forward to the future in terms of point of care ultrasound, what do you think that, that might entail? I mean, I hear a little bit about so artificial intelligence for some of these devices and then being able to measure sort of ejection fractions and things like that. Is is that likely to be the future or where do you think things are going with, with these devices? Yeah, so I'm definitely into my tech and I'm definitely into point of care ultrasound. So the, the fusion of both of those things for me is a match made in heaven. But I'm also majorly into my governance. And I think what I fear with these advances is that it just takes away the requirement for the person at the end of that device to to kind of have any experience of knowing when that number is actually completely wrong because the the cut that you're looking through the heart isn't particularly on axis or just something's not quite right because that number just seems either too low or too high what these ai devices do particularly what you've just said about ejection fraction it kind of as soon as you get a number at the end of that test that then it gets put into the notes and everything is based on that number. And I think what I fear is that it will replace what we've been teaching for years and years in FUSIC is the ability to understand how you as a user can impact that number quite grossly. (laughs) So as long as the introduction of AI is governed by experienced supervisors, then I think it's definitely going to revolutionise the way that we perform echo in critical care but um if it's just going to just be sort of one day rolled out here you go you can do everything you can come up with all these numbers and no one's really taking care of the sort of quality of training and particularly the training around user error then we're going to end up in a situation where we'll just be walking around with random number generators which is not really what we want so yeah i'm all for it but just i'm a little bit skeptical about it about the introduction of it from a governance point of view. But yeah, I mean, point of care ultrasound has obviously, if you can look at it over a scale, it's gone from these big machines that you have to pull along the unit. And then as soon as you take the plug out, the whole thing powers down and it takes about seven years to power back up again. It's gone now down to a small little, you know, iPad that you can walk around with. I and mean, then that's brilliant. And I think as long as when things get smaller, the technology um, and the quality doesn't get less, then it's definitely it's definitely the future. Um, and so far, I've found the devices that I've been using, like, for example, Philips Lumify, to be incredibly helpful. So, yeah, go for it. Do you think we're at the point of replacing the stethoscope yet? Or is that is that in the future? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've always said that... Um, you got to take baby steps in terms of just recognizing that it's important not to send the wrong message, isn't it? So, for example, not everyone's going to come out of medical school, for example, or in my case, ACP school with the knowledge of knowing ultrasound. So there is definitely not going to be a point unless we integrate it into medical school curriculum um, that we can do away with the stethoscope. And if that ends up being the case, then great. But um, yeah, I mean, we know what the sensitivity and specificity is of auscultation, even even attaching that onto clinical examination, it's still less than what we can derive from lung ultrasound. 
So there's no denying scientifically that ultrasound has got the edge there. But um, it'd be a shame to get rid of what I think kind of the naysayers will will hang on to as being the sort of main additional medical techniques of assessing somebody. But until we get to a point of integrating it into medical curriculum, I think we'll hang on to that for a little while. <laughs> In terms of people becoming competent at Fusic Hearts at level one Fusic Hearts, yep. they do a course and then what happens after that? Yeah, so um, actually, um, probably due to the pandemic, what we did was to try and reduce there being a kind of lull on ultrasound training throughout that period where it ended up becoming quite a helpful tool is we, as a committee, we recorded lectures and put them into the online registration that you'd have access to when you registered for FUSIC. Uh, And as such, you (laughs) were able to either attend a face-to-face course or use the videos as as that kind of component but in any case you need to do some level of theoretical training prior to starting hands-on stuff and then you know when you get back into your clinical area you'd be expected to link up with a an approved mentor one thing that I think people miss is that having the supervisor um, component as well so there needs to be somebody that's level two trained in your hospital that can take overarching responsibility over your training and the governance associated with it and 10 scans directly supervised don't need to be sequential because we know that you're not always on shift with your mentor and that can sometimes limit your exposure but as long as you don't leave too many big gaps in between those first 10 scans you can splice in some indirectly supervised scans and for fusic heart you have to complete 50 scans in total so 10 directly supervised and 40 indirectly supervised so have them saved ready to go through with your mentor at a later point in time and some people find it sort of quite hard to find a mentor they might not have one locally are there any solutions around that Yeah, the first thing that springs to my mind, because I'm someone who has been teaching Echo remotely for some time now, is remote mentoring. Now, this is kind of a newish thing, really. It's been around for a long time, but I think in terms of it's been a bit more established into options for FUSIC accreditation. So I know a few people around the UK that that do do remote mentoring. Um, I have been doing it for probably about five years now. And, and really what we're looking at is replacing that indirectly supervised component with a remote mentor. So, you know, I have people come to me and say, I've just been on a course, I've done my 10 supervised scans, and I'm just finding it really hard to find someone that can take me through the rest of this process. You know, we get together online and you know, a standard sort of remote mentoring package looks like four or five online sessions throughout the 12 months. They upload their scans anonymously to a Dropbox, for example, software, and we get that up on the screen, have a look at the loops and, and look at the Echo report side by side and talk about talk about it. Did you have issues with that? I give them some clues as to what could have potentially improve their image quality and then we go through interpretation which is usually the most challenging part for people after having got the sort of clinical skill pinned down do that throughout the year over the 12 month period that's afforded to them to collect a logbook and actually more recently in the last couple of years I've now been doing the trigger assessment which is the practical exam um, remotely which is something that we did for the BSc level one during the COVID era so, yeah, I've successfully took quite a number of people now through their Fusic accreditation using remote mentoring. 
So yeah, I definitely think remote mentoring is the solution to the individuals out there that are finding it really difficult to get mentoring exposure. Hannah, I brought to a close there. Is there any sort of final bits you want to comment on, any final points you want to make or think it's important people know about? Yeah, it's just to say, you know, engage with this skill. It's definitely the future. I think, you know, Intensive Care Echo has been around for a long, long time now, and it will improve your clinical diagnostics. And, you know, going forward into FUSIC HD, it will start to become a real key tool for you when you're making hemodynamic alterations. So, you know, engage with the training courses that are available to you across the country. FUSIC has now put a lot of effort into improving the quality of the online training. And if anyone has any sort of further questions or wants certain things like this, little podcasts around ECHO, then please get in touch with the committee, either through the ICS website or in touch with me personally, and I'd be happy to have a chat. Thank you.